gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And today, we're going to be talking with Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Shoemaker about their new book, Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women. And Rachel and I have both read this book and highly recommend it to our audience. I will put a link in the episode notes to the book. And just to start out, Eric and Elise, why did you write this book? Yeah, uh, that's uh, a good question. It could probably be answered in several different ways. But uh, as I was joking beforehand, Elise told me to. Uh, that's true. Uh, it started for me uh, back with uh, really just thinking through issues related to uh, men and women in the Bible and uh, trying to listen more to stories of women sharing uh, about what their experience has been like in the church, their stories of abuse, those sorts of things, as opposed to just sort of pushing them off to the side. And Karen Swallow Pryor had tweeted something about uh, neglected women, uh, the widows in Acts 6, being the occasion for the first uh, deacons or proto-deacons. And so that got me thinking about where women were the first in the Bible to do certain things. And I spent maybe an afternoon or something just sort of sorting through resources in the Bible, looking for those sorts of things came up with a list of about 20 and tweeted them out. And the Gospel Coalition came along and said, hey, would you turn this into an article? So I turned it into an article, and Elise saw it and liked it and invited me onto her podcast, The Front Porch with the Fitzes. And we were talking about the article there, and she said, you should write this book. And I said, you should write it with me. And here we are. Yeah, that's that's about the the how, how it went. You know, I think that right about the time that I started talking with Eric about this, um, I had been doing kind of a deep dive into white privilege in the church um, and had really begun to see things maybe a little differently than I had before and had begun to um, not only ask questions about about, uh, ethnicities in the church, but then generally about how women were being treated. So this was, you know, it was already on my radar. And then we just sort of serendipitously uh, connected over Twitter, which generally isn't a good thing, but was this time. You know, it's interesting. That's what I noticed. Um, I remember, Eric, when you started writing and tweeting along these lines, I remember seeing some mm. of the things that you were writing about, and um, uh, you were giving away books uh, from about women or to women. And it was—I remember the kind of the lead up while you must have been working on this. So yeah, um, yeah, that was it. Um, and it's really pretty cool. As I was reading your book, 
I, I know that your book and mine were written around the same time and, you know, without either one of us having read the other. Right. 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 Yeah. And what was so cool in reading your book was to see the places that we were, um, you know, coming alongside each other and saying, you know, these same kinds of ideas, right? Like it, the books are both different. They cover different topics, but the, the similarities in places that were like echoes of, yeah, I saw that Mm. too. And yeah, this is just, it was, I'm really pleased at the number of books like that, that are coming out that are, um, I think the word is amplifying this message. Mm. Yes. Um, and I was really pleased. Yeah, it's interesting to see the number that are coming out at the same period that are not coordinated. Right. It's it's really interesting to me. Very encouraging. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, there is um, there are a number of I think very significant important books that have come out and are coming out. Um, it seems as though this is something that the Lord is speaking into his church at this time. So I'm really thankful that, you know, um, we, to be part of that. But, you know, I, I know that a lot of people are doing a lot of really great work at this point. Eric, you mentioned the, the list of firsts for women in the Bible. And I, uh, it, I know it, you include it in the, as an appendix in the book and throughout yeah. the book, you, you reference it. Um, I really appreciated it. Could you talk about some of those firsts in redemptive history and why they're significant? Sure. Uh, so I'll just flip through it and pick out a few. Um, you know, a woman's absence is the first thing that's declared not good in creation. Uh, the first recorded song in human history is the man rejoicing over the woman and rejoicing in her as his equal. Um, the uh, a woman is going to give birth to the, the Messiah. Uh, the first recorded words of faith are spoken by Eve in Genesis chapter 4. Um, the first declaration of the Lord's ability to do the impossible is spoken to a barren woman and what he's going to do through her. Uh, the first person uh, in the Bible to give a name to God, the God who sees, is a woman, Hagar. Um and so the list just proceeds like that and notices it's not just the first woman to do something, but the first person to do something is a woman. And I, I don't really think I, as I put together that list, I thought it was, you know, I drew a few applications for that gospel coalition article and thought, well, this is something more than trivial. You know, this isn't just some random facts. Uh, I, you know, I noted that it, it shows us that God notices women and he uses women. I don't think I still fully grasp the significance of it, but it's something I've come to see after writing worthy. And so I didn't really make this point strongly in the book is that I I really think the Bible and particularly the opening chapters of Genesis are written in a way that points us to look for women in the storyline. And I say that because, you know, the, the crisis, if you will, in Genesis chapter two is that there's no helper for the man and that's not good. And what's celebrated at the culmination of that chapter is him celebrating that she's here as a helper that's fit for him. They can accomplish this creation mandate together. And, and then in Genesis three, what we see is this promise that the the, the seed, uh, the redeemer is going to come and he's going to be uh, the seed of the woman. And Moses could have written it a different way. God could have spoken it a different way. He could have said there's going to be a son born, but he highlights this enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's seed and her seed, the seed of the woman and it, that marks that redemption is going, this, this redeemer is going to come through the doorway, so to speak, of a woman. But even then, as we watch the woman through the Old Testament as it unfolds, 
you know, Adam doesn't speak again, I don't think, after Genesis chapter 3, but it's Eve who speaks at the beginning of Genesis 4 and at the end of Genesis 4, and she's speaking words of faith about what the Lord has done. And then as the Old Testament unfolds, we see time and time again, and Elise does a really good job of this as she writes about Israel and about the church, we see time and again where the, the line of Christ, looking back, is threatened. Uh, you know, some patriarch, some ancestor of Christ isn't going to be born unless somebody intervenes. And we so often see a woman of faith do bold and courageous things to rescue the line of the Redeemer. And so she plays, women play a key role in getting Christ to us in, in a literal sense of him being born. And and it's it's often through their relationship to Yahweh that they find the courage to act in unexpected and faithful ways. And even when we get to the New Testament after Christ is born and lives and dies and rises again, as the church is growing, you know, you see women showing up as essential partners to the Apostle Paul and to others. And it's in that partnership that the Great Commission, now not just the creation mandate, but the Great Commission is being fulfilled. And so women are something more than nice. They're something more than necessary for merely children. They're necessary for the whole thing. Like whoever called it a blessed alliance was absolutely right. Uh, God's per- God has designed things so that his purposes won't be accomplished apart from this sort of blessed alliance between men and women. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about ontology, something that comes up a lot in our group and in different articles. And uh, what do the scriptures teach us about who we are as women and men and our worth? Yeah, um, that's such a great great question. And it's such an important question um, because one of the pushbacks that we've gotten in the in our book um, is because we're talking primarily about ontology and we're not talking about gender roles and a lot of people want us to do that and think the book is lacking because we don't um, you know before you get before you get to be talking about um, perhaps and I and I'm not comfortable anymore uh, even saying gender roles but anyway um, you know, uh, what we want to do is we want to say, look at the bottom line of who we are has to do with, with our being created in the image of God as women, as men. And it's that very imprint of God's image upon us in our ontology that is the most important thing about us. So, you know, as, as I said, my husband and I are old and we like to watch Antiques Roadshow. And, and the fun part of Antiques Roadshow is when, you know, somebody pulls out some canvas that they found in a dumpster somewhere and the appraiser um, is just beside himself because he points out the signature of the artist and says, well, this is the long lost whatever piece of art and you know it's worth five hundred thousand dollars okay so what makes that piece of canvas go go from being uh go from not being worth anything to being worth a a great value um it what it what changes it is of course that all-important signature so for us as as human beings man created in the image of God, male and female, what gives us value is the fact that we're Imago Dei. We are created in God's image, and that's what gives us value, and that is the most important thing about it. What happens, though, in in discussions about this is uh, a lot of times people will say, yes, yes, of course, of course, we, we all are uh, equal in our ontology. And then, they, and then they will proceed from there to say, 
yes, we are equal in our ontology, but we have different natures. And Rachel, I've heard you on this before, and I, and I am so, so thankful for the work you've done. As if uh, a woman being created in the image of God is somehow different than a man being created in the image of God. And yes, of course, we are male and female, but we are, uh, in our ontology, equally created in the image of God. And, and one of the things that I've heard you talk about with great interest is, um, you know, is in the image of Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ and him being uh, the God-man, um, you know, whatever, whatever nature he doesn't assume is a nature that's not redeemed. And, you know, if, if somehow females have a different nature in their ontology than men, then how can they even be redeemed? Um, but I, you know, that's, that's to us the important question um, that really has to get settled because so many people will, will, you know, they'll nod their head and they'll say, oh, yes, yes, we are equal in our ontology. But, you know, we have these different natures. And I'm like, wait, what? Yes, you're, you're exactly right with uh, the importance there, right? If, if we are different, we are different, but how are we different, right? And, yeah. um, and certainly our, our human nature, our ontology we have to get this right before we can go on to talk about the rest of how to apply that. You know, yeah. that's, it's so I, key. I think a question that needs to be asked to those who want to say that men and women have two different natures uh, are two different, in essence, two different types of being. Why stop with male and female? Is there a different ontology for a white person versus a black mm-hmm. person for a blonde versus a redhead, um, you know. Granted, we do have uh, almost uncountable differences, which is obvious. We're all unique. Uh, there's a way in which we're all the same. We're all human beings. We share a category of being, a nature, and and we're all different because we're all not each other. And I think I think that's a challenge for those who want to say there's a female ontology and a male ontology is why stop there? There, you know, granted there's a stewardship if you are white and you've been in a place of privilege that is different than a person who is black and has been uh, prejudiced against. We have different stewardships based on. Um, who we are individually and where we live and when we live and all those sorts of things, but that doesn't change our nature. And that's one of the things I, I fear about that discussion is um, there's some reason it's landing on gender and not always landing on everything else. It's a very good point. One of the things when we're talking about this, about uh, like misperceptions, on ontology, there is a section in the book where you talk about various uh, passages in scripture that have been uh, used to teach or promote misperceptions about women, uh, like Genesis 3.16. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of those passages or um, ones that you think are significant? Sure, I'll, I'll pick one and then maybe Elise can pick another one if there's one she she wants to rant on after I get done ranting. Um, you know, uh, I think Genesis three, uh, 16, where we find, um, the consequences for the fall that always, uh, comes to mind as a good illustration. And I think there's this, there's a, certainly a popular, um, interpretation of this passage, particularly in discussions about, quote unquote, biblical manhood and womanhood. And so, um, you know, the Lord says to the woman, uh, your desire uh, shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And in fact, the ESV has landed on its permanent translation, your desire shall be contrary to your husband or against your husband. 
And so that construction, what does it mean? Your desire shall be for your husband. Um, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood's interpretation of that, which is actually written into the Danvers statement, is that uh, women will um, they will seek to subvert and resist the leadership of their husbands and um, and try to overtake them and take their place of, of leadership and that sort of thing. And then um, they interpret the husband ruling uh, over you as he's going to be harsh and uh, abusive and, and mistreat you and, and so forth. Uh, and that's taken from uh, you know, later in Genesis 4, where uh, the Lord says to Cain, that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. And so they're saying the same construction occurs there. Sin obviously wants to overtake and consume and destroy and master Cain, and he's going to have to to kill it. And so they argue that's how this should be taken as well. Um, the word for, uh, desire for, uh, that that's also used, desire is also used in the Song of Solomon. It's, the, it's only used, I think, in those three places in the Old Testament. And it's for a, a woman's desire for her husband romantically. And, and so what's written into the Danvers statement is, um, what's written in is that wives are going to, um, I'm actually looking for it here in their statement. Okay, here it is. Uh, they write in here that in the home, uh, the wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurp usurpation or servility that she's going to try to usurp him. And uh, I, I think that's the wrong uh, interpretation there. I think what it means is that uh, what Moses meant is that the woman still will have the desire to cooperate with and partner with her husband in exercising dominion over the face of the earth and filling it and being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, but he is going to respond in a way that frustrates that partnership and that unity by being harsh and sinful. And I say that because the most important context for a passage is its immediate context. And as you walk through the consequences of sin, given in Genesis 3, what you're seeing is that good creation desires remain. The man still wants to work the ground and eat bread from what he grows from the ground but that good desire is going to be met with uh, frustration as thorns and thistles grow, and he's going to have to sweat to get the ground. The ground's not going to cooperate with him. The woman still wants to have children, and, but she's going to have, that's a good desire, uh, but she's going to have pain in her childbearing. And I think desire uh, for your husband means you're going to still have the right desire to partner with him in this creation mandate, but it's going to be frustrating because of his sinful response. And to, to say otherwise, to, to adopt the Danvers statement interpretation actually does violence to the poetic structure of that passage, because it's the only place where the human desire to do a thing is sinful and the response is sinful. It's just not how the poetry's working there. And what I think is dangerous about this is that interpretation requires... Now, are there women who want to usurp proper authority in the world? Absolutely. Because all women, like all men, are sinful and fallen and corrupted by the fall. And so we all want to rebel against authority. But this interpretation requires us to see women, particularly in the church and in the home, as always and especially suspect that you need to go into marriage counseling uh, looking for her, her bent towards usurping her husband uh, or her bent towards uh, usurping the pastoral leadership in the church. And I think that makes us wrongly suspicious of women. And, and I, I think it's particularly sad that this was codified into this uh, creed, the Danvers statement. 
And, you know, this is, this is a statement that it's some of our Southern Baptist seminaries, you have to sign to be able to teach there, which means every single faculty member there has to agree that women are prone to not submit in right relationships and they're prone to usurp that authority. I, I think that's, I don't know why that interpretation is so essential to manhood and womanhood. It has to be in the statement, but they put it there. And now for many Southern Baptist professors, you have to believe that interpretation to find your employment. That's, that's weird to me. And it's, it's concerning that seeing women with a particular bent towards a sinful resistance to authority has to be held to believe in quote-unquote biblical manhood and womanhood. First of all, I want to, I just want to publicly thank Eric for the work he's done on that. That has, what he just said has been so very helpful to me personally to be able to look through that um, and to look at that passage in Genesis 3 the way that uh, we believe it should be read and translated. Um, I, I was aware of the uh, concerns about the way it was being translated in the ESV and, um, and how, you know, being translated contrary to, it automatically sets up conflict in the marriage. And I also think that it sets up for some people who take this to what I believe is a logical conclusion, if that's what you think, which is that the man has to continually be pushing his wife down into a submissive posture. And um, so then as a person who um, has been involved in counseling for years, not that I am anymore, but um, just just seeing how this has played out, that women are always trying to usurp, therefore men must take control of them and stop them. And I've seen it play out in churches where a woman would come to uh, her elders, her pastors, and ask for help because her husband is being abusive. And for pastors who have bought into this uh, interpretation, for them to automatically side with the husband in telling the wife, she, it, the problem is really that she's not submissive enough, she doesn't, you know, she's not pretty enough, she's not quiet enough, and so uh, he, you know, all. all almost always siding with husbands who are actually being abusive uh, in their marriage. And um, so, you know, and we always say theology has consequences. And the consequence that I have seen is for women who have been in abusive and really terrible marriages for decades and who have tried in faith for decades to be submissive enough and for certain abusive patriarchal husbands to assume that, uh, you know, what's wrong in the marriage is that she's not a big enough doormat and that they need to force her to submit more and then to have pastors come alongside the guys and tell them the same thing. It's, it's, it's absolutely uh, such a poisonous doctrine. And then when you add on to that the, the belief, and I think that this is just a general belief among uh, evangelicals, that women are more easily deceived than men because Paul says <laughs> that Eve was deceived before Adam, that, you know, that Eve was deceived not even saying anything about Adam's disobedience, um, that there's this thought that women generally 
are always trying to be self-assertive. They're always trying to usurp authority. And besides that, they're very easily deceived. So when you take that and, and, you, and you say that, you know, that's what we believe as Christians about women, it's no wonder women are being uh, abused, uh, emotionally abused, spiritually abused. And if I may, it's no wonder that a lot of women just finally in frustration and heartbreak just say, okay, well, if that's actually what the Bible teaches, and they've never heard that it's not, if that's actually what the Bible teaches, and and I've tried and tried and tried, I guess I can't be good enough to do this, and they walk away from the faith. That, to me, um, that's a heartbreak to me, and I've seen it over and over again. We have got to get this message right, but I'll tell you what, there's so much resistance to what you folks are doing, to what we're doing, and other friends to try to say, look at, we've, we've got to stop this. We really do. Uh, thank you so much. That was so helpful, and these are things that we've been talking about for a while on this podcast, and I'll tell you, for me, it's been so eye-opening when I started studying this a few years ago, the Genesis 3.16, and I realized all of the all the practical implications of believing that. Um, some of the things you were talking about, Elise, I've seen that same thing. And just that suspicion of women, and you're right, adding the all women are more easily deceived and maybe adding some eternal subordination, and you've got kind of a not yes. great picture, definitely not a biblical one. <laughs> You know, in in the book, you you uh, talk about. Uh, I'll read just part of a quote. You say, "What should you What should you see when you see a Christian woman? You should not see a snare, a temptation, and a pitfall. You should not see an object of sexual gratification, a threat to power, a crafty usurper." And you go on from there. But so, and and you do talk in there also about how we should view women. But we'd like to talk about that. How should we view women? Yeah. Well. Um, I, I think that, you know, we can look at um, some of the Pauline epistles and talk about how we should view women. We should view uh, women as sisters and mothers and daughters, and um, we, should, we should have a biblical perspective on, on one another. Well, what does the Bible tell me? Not only, not only do I... N- know certain things as a woman. I mean, I know that every woman I come in contact with uh, is sins. <laughs> we, we all do that. Um, and I also know that they have been created in the image of God. And for uh, sisters in Christ, uh, I know that they have been clothed in Christ and they with Christ and have been given his righteousness and have been uh, filled with his spirit. And, you know, so what do I what do I need to know that I, I in my relationships with other women that those are the things that I would like to to come into every relationship with, which is. I, and, and I need to understand also that uh, I, I need to love my neighbor, whether my neighbor is a female or a male, and that and give my neighbor the benefit of the doubt that my ba- neighbor is trying in her way to uh, to love God and and to love her neighbor, and you know to to begin to. Instead of having these caricatures, you know, she's a vixen, she's a vice, you know, what do we do about a problem like Maria? You know, those kinds of things we need to say, look at where we are all of us sinful. We are all of us broken. We are all of us in need of grace uh, for one another and from God. And then to assume the best. Instead of looking at women and always assuming the worst, you know, even the way we take the stories in the Old Testament, uh, you know, the story of Bathsheba. I mean, how many times in in my Christian experience have I heard the story about David and Bathsheba having an affair? 
And, you know, and I remember it was probably, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, I tweeted something about it or I posted it somewhere that, you know, this wasn't an affair. This was, this was rape and maybe she wasn't screaming for help, but it was certainly uh, a, a powerful person uh, taking advantage of someone who was weak. And the pushback that I got, because what people want to do is they want to say, well, yes, David sinned. And yeah, yeah, you know, he was a murderer. But, you know, there's that Bathsheba. Again, we're getting back to this view that somehow women are are worse. And I can remember even in my own writing, talking about the Samaritan woman as though as though she was a a woman who had any choice in her life about her divorce, her divorces, or even the fact that she had to, at this point, in order to survive, just live with someone. And never even considering the fact that she didn't have the right to divorce, that it were that that it was men who were divorcing her, and then you know I discovered in doing some research about her that in the Eastern Orthodox Church she's venerated um, as as uh, her name is Fotine. That's the name they have given her. And that she was martyred in North Africa with her sons as she was there spreading the gospel. Well, here's the first Gentile to whom Christ reveals his, um, that he's the Messiah. It's the first Gentile who hears that message. And she's the first Gentile who goes <laughs> and is commissioned to go with the uh, Great Commission to tell other people, imagine the courage that it took for this woman, this woman who had been denigrated and disgraced, to go into this village where everyone knew who she was and to say, come and see a man. <laughs> He's told me everything. I mean, think about, think about her courage. And you see, if we don't, if we don't respect women, as being created in the image of God, and we automatically assume that they are suspect, then we will read passages like the story of Bathsheba, like the story of Tamar, like the story of Fotine. We will read these passages as if somehow these women are, the story, the moral of the story is, don't be like them or something. Um, yeah, we, we've got, <laughs> we, need to, we need to do a rereading. And that was one of the things that I really loved about this project was doing a rereading of scripture and looking for ways in which uh, the Bible, the Holy Spirit honored women and many of them, many of them, were not the typical, um, what we would call honorable, um, typically uh, biblically feminine women. What Elise was just saying there about the benefit of going back and rereading these passages, that was one of the biggest benefits to me, I think, in writing Worthy, was just going back to the the, the, the focus of scripture, the section we were writing about and, and reading through it. So like on the chapters on Jesus, I just went through the gospels and I went through all four and just marked every place a woman shows up and just tried to see how Jesus spoke and how he interacted and what he said. And, you know, one of those, those passages that had, that just really struck me, was in Luke 11. I keep coming back to this. Uh, It says, as he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. And Jesus said, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so here's the, this woman in the crowd who probably like 
everyone in her culture was reducing the blessedness of a woman to, first of all, what she did, the bearing of children, and second of all, who that male child was. And so a woman's blessed if she has kids, she's more blessed if she has a son, and she's the most blessed if she gives birth to the Messiah. And Jesus says, no. The place a woman finds her blessedness is in hearing the word of God and keeping it. The way that a woman is fully and finally blessed is by hearing the gospel that Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, lived a life of perfect righteousness, died on the cross for the sins of his people, rose from the dead, conquering Satan and death and sin, and he reigns at the right hand of God. And when you trust in him, he gives you the forgiveness of sins and you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so what we can find sometimes in gender discussions is that the really blessed woman or the really blessed man is the one who fits herself or himself into these cookie cutter roles, which sometimes are overextensions of implications of perceived principles. And if you really want to be a blessed woman, then you'll do this and this and this, which almost, or maybe it simply does, subtracts from the sufficiency of the gospel. I appreciate how you answered those questions. And one thing that I appreciated, particularly in the book, uh, you talked about the change in women's primary calling from the Old Testament to the New. Mm -hmm. And I think the quote I have here is, in Old Testament times, women viewed their primary role as building God's kingdom through the birth of the promised one. And then because the Messiah has come, a woman's call is to expand God's kingdom through many different vocations. Um, could you kind of flesh that out and talk a little about, about what you're getting at there? Yeah, I, I'd love to do that because for me personally, one of the things that was most intriguing to me as, as I was working on this book was coming to see how uh, in the Old Testament, times a woman um, was considered uh, to be part outwardly of course to be part of the covenant community because she was in relationship with a circumcised father or husband or son or brother that it was really through this that sign of the covenant which was a, a male uh, sign of the covenant that um, her relationship in some ways, of course, she had to have her own faith, but, but she signaled that by being in relationship with, um, with, a, with a circumcised male. Then um, the, in the new covenant, you have a switch from um, this, this gender-specific act of circumcision to baptism, which is open to both males and females. And basically what that means is that sign of the covenant is no longer dependent upon a woman's natural relationships with, um, with males, with a with, and, and, you know, and that bleeds way over into the New Covenant, into the New Testament, where we have, even in patriarchy, men being basically the priest in their house, and the wife has to have a relationship with him. But see, that's not at all the picture that we have in the New Testament. And so now the sign of the covenant, which is baptism, is open to males and females and now my, the way that I signal, and you, you know, everybody does whatever they want to do with baptism, and that's not my, that's not my point. It's just that males, that females and males can receive the sign of the covenant um, whenever you think it's right in your tradition to do that. And that... Um, and, and that really the only relationship that I as a, as a new covenant woman have to have is the relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the circumcised, baptized 
male. He's the only one. So what that means to my way of thinking is that whereas I was trying to get, or I, I would have tried to get under the old covenant, my identity as being part of the household of faith, my identity from a male or from being married or giving birth or, you know, um, before the Messiah, giving birth, hopefully to the promised one. Now I get my identity instead from Jesus Christ. And what that means is that perhaps I live that out, that identity out as a married woman with children and I I live my life seeking to uh, build the kingdom with and through them, but I don't have to do that. And that for me is another one of those places where there are so many single women who believe that their identity is really lacking as Christians because they're not married or they don't have children. Whereas the Great Commission is given to males and females, and that's where we're supposed to be focused. And what's really interesting to me is that when you start reading then the book of Acts and you find the first baptized convert in Europe is a, what we, I think, should assume is either a widow or, or, or a divorced or a single woman. We never hear anything about Lydia's husband or her children. The first convert to Christianity in Europe is, is a single woman, a businesswoman. And that, to me, speaks volumes about how it's no longer an issue of, are you married? Do you have a bunch of children? Therefore, you have value to now, do you believe in the God-man who was circumcised and who was baptized for us? And that's our identity. And this is another one of these places where if you begin to say things like that, People who have found their identity as being a godly mom, and and that's a good thing, um, but that's not your primary identity. Your primary identity is being hidden in Christ, and if you push against that, you're going to get a lot of pushback. You know, I think I think a natural objection that someone might raise to what Elise just shared is, well, where does the where does the Old Testament say that a woman's primary calling? is to uh, have children and give birth to the Messiah, or where do we have evidence that they thought that way? Um, and that's a legit question. And I think, I think for those who might be asking it, I think you can just look back at the Old Testament. In part, the creation mandate was to be fruitful and multiply. So in some sense, there was a central command to both men and women to have kids and then just look at their responses all the way through the Old Testament when they can't. Right. Look at Naomi saying, I've come back to Bethlehem empty. I have nothing. And she has a daughter-in-law who's faithful to the Lord and to her. But in her mind, she doesn't have a son. She doesn't have a, a son. And look at Hannah weeping you know, as she wants a son. In fact, the, I think you could state that the, the whole Old Testament, the objective of the whole thing is for a faithful son to be born and, you know, a second Adam to come along who loves God and keeps his commands. And when that one arrives in Christ, Uh, we're given a new mandate, which is to go not and have children and populate the earth. We're told, we're told to go uh, make disciples. And the way we exercise dominion is by teaching those disciples to obey everything Jesus commanded, because he's the king exercising dominion now. And so the creation mandate really has found its fulfillment in the Great Commission. In fact, I've heard, I won't say his name because it 
doesn't need to be involved in the debate, but I, I heard, uh, I remember hearing a very popular pastor who is very involved in, uh, you know, the complementarian biblical manhood and womanhood things, uh, where people were talking about whether or not Christians had to have children. And he said, someone should tell them that the creation mandates found its fulfillment in the Great Commission. There is no requirement for Christians to have children. They need to go make disciples. And that that's coming from a very complementarian teacher. So I, I, you know, I think the exactly what the implications are that Elise spelled out that um, we, we find our calling and our commission in bringing people to Christ and teaching them to follow him. One of the things that's part of this discussion is women in the church. And on our last episode, we actually talked to Amy Bird about that. Because uh, I've, I've seen in discussions in my group, especially where there seems to be in so many churches, it's not, it's not being distinguished. They distinguish between men and women almost primarily, not between ordained officers and lay people. And so, and I've seen this in churches and heard stories. It's almost like a man can do anything in the church because he's a man and a woman can work in the nursery and, you know, make meals. So what would you say um, are some ways that churches and leaders can bring women in, include them in the life of the church? Eric, why don't you go ahead with that? Because you've done such a good job with that and talking about, you know, what what you would tell pastors to do. I, I think that's something you're so good at. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll try to answer that. I, I think, you know, um, when, we, when we start thinking about what men and women do in the church, um, as we think about, you know, you mentioned Amy making the distinction between um, the ordained and the layperson. And I think that's a helpful way to think. Um, I understand the concerns about um, are there ways in which, you know, someone could function like a pastor um, in inappropriate ways when they haven't been ordained. I think those are things, you know, that a local church needs to sit down and have a good conversation about. Its leadership needs to come to some sort of an agreement about, what does this mean? What do Paul's instructions mean? And how does it play itself out? And, and every church is going to have um, some differences, I think, in how they apply that. You know, even within um, my, my circles, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, we have some churches that would open the office of deacon to women. They think Paul opens that office to women. And others who often have had deacons functioning as elders would have that only be men. So that, that's an example. But I think, uh, you know, even in those areas, in the life of the church, I think some ways, you know, I, I as a pastor, so typically, bef- unless I forget, before I preach, you know, a week, week and a half early, I might send an email out to five men and five women and just ask them, hey, could you give me some feedback um, on this passage I'm going to preach through? And maybe some ideas of how this applies uh, to your area of life and how you see things. Um, so I'm, I'm asking feedback from women to speak into my sermons and my interpretations and my applications because they see things and experiencing experience things that, that I don't. I also try to be very sensitive to um, how I meet with people. And so one of the things I found, you know, for a pastor, we might go out to lunch with other guys or grab coffee with other guys. But if a woman wants to speak to a pastor, then she needs to come into the office and there needs to be a window in the door or the door needs to be propped open and somebody else needs to be in the building. And and all these things that uh, either set him up as someone who's prone to do something inappropriate or her set her up as someone who's going to tempt him and seduce him. And I don't think those things are necessarily unwise. I think windows and presence of other people is, is wise for every meeting, whether I'm meeting with a, a man or a woman. But I, I know for some women that coming into a pastor's office, sitting down in a chair and having a, co- a conversation in that context can be uh, intimidating. It can be threatening. 
Uh, and that's not just because of who I am. It might be their circumstances. A woman who has been abused by men in authority might really not want to come into a room where the door's closed, even if a window's open, you know, there's a window to see through and sit with him in that environment. She might be a lot more comfortable sitting in a coffee shop where everything's public, where any raised voices can be overheard and where she has total freedom to just get up and leave at, at her desire. And so when pastors m- make rules like the Billy Graham rule and they won't have coffee with a woman one-on-one in a public setting, I think they are probably cutting some women out of pastoral care and conversations. So there's ways in which men have more natural access to me. And I, I'm trying, and there's probably more I can do to open those avenues to women to be able to have those conversations with me. Yeah, there's probably more I could say. At least, what what ideas do you have? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm I'm speaking from a personal context where uh, historically, uh, in a church, um, there were committees that were um, considered diaconal, um, and where only men were allowed to be on committees. And then um, as this church is beginning to change and, and try to see things differently, they're asking women to be on the committees and not just, not just as a pretty throw pillow, as you would say, Rachel, but also as, uh, you know, we, we want to hear from you. We're sure that you're gifted in ways in, and we need to hear from you. So, you know, doing, doing things like that. And then, uh, actually asking asking women uh, for their opinion and and assuming that God has if a woman has the Holy Spirit if she's if she's Christ she has the spirit she's been given gifts and those gifts are necessary for the church so aside from the ordained office of pastor, you know, then how can we use these these gifts? And I know that there are contexts where women are allowed to read a passage or to pray aloud, which, you know, it seems like it ought to be something we're doing since Paul tells us how to dress when we're doing it. But, um, you know, doing those kinds of things. And I've, I've also been in contexts where, in churches where it's only and always a male voice and a male presence about everything, including giving announcements. So um, I, uh, I, I think that if we start out at the right place, which is not gender roles, the right place, which is Imago Dei, the right place, which is that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on your son's and your daughters, if we start there, then we'll begin to ask the right questions, which is how can we, while observing perhaps male-only or ordination, while observing male-only or ordination, how can we hear and value the, the voice of women? Yeah, I think that is a really uh, an important question to ask. Um, as we, we come here to towards wrapping up the discussion, I, I wanted to, to reiterate how much I appreciate y'all taking on this topic and discussing uh, the value of women, the worth of women, and why why it matters. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you're very welcome. I, I really do appreciate it. And I wanted to ask what, and you mentioned it just kind of briefly in the book, but what kinds of responses or challenges are y'all coming across because you're speaking up on these issues? So for me, I'm noticing the responses we get from men and women. And I've noticed that among women, the most common response we get, and, and, and I'm being literal here, the most common response we get from women is that they cried. And, and often that they cried the whole way through the book. And women are saying, this was healing to read. And these aren't, these aren't you know, the stereotypical flaming liberal feminist types. 
And these are conservative Christian women who love the Bible and have been involved in the church for their life or for decades. And they're saying, this was healing to hear. This was helpful to me. Sometimes saying, this is the first time I've ever heard this said by a man or by a pastor. And that's really sad. And it's eye-opening that women are longing to hear this. And I don't think it's because women are out there going, make much of me, make much of me, make much of me. You know, it's, it's not that they're self-centered or glory seeking or grasping for something like Eve that they shouldn't have. It's, there's a real sense among women we're hearing from that in their churches and in their contexts, they have not felt valued. And then from men, what I'm hearing, and often from pastors, is I've never seen these things before. And I'm repenting as I read through it, which is really interesting to me. The women seem to be saying, I knew these things, but I've never heard these things. And men are saying, I'd never seen these things. So how could I say them? Yeah, so we've had we've had a lot of really good feedback um, from you know a, a, a woman I would call one of my very best friends who's a very very strong conservative believing wonderful Bible loving woman uh, who basically uh, said to me. It, while crying, not just like a little tear trickling down her face, but actually, actually bawling and saying to me, I've never thought I had any value. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we've heard that. We've also gotten other pushback, of course, which we thought we would. Um, that basically the the main problem with our book is that we is that if we're going to talk about women we need to make sure that what we're talking about is what they cannot do not that they have value and so we have had a conference cancel uh, because of that um, and so I mean this it, it's not a nothing that if what you want to do is talk about the fact that women actually have value, um, if you're not at the same time fencing them and saying over and over again, uh, you know, yeah, they have value, but, you know, they can't do X, Y, or Z, um, that your message is not even worth hearing. That to, to myself has been... That to me has been very um, disheartening and and personally um, personally hurtful um, because you know what we we can't even move the conversation to women having value without automatically um, trotting out the trope of yeah, but, you know, they can't do X, Y, or Z. And, and, oh, by the way, don't you know that even talking about women having value means you're trying to usurp and you're easily deceived? Well, I think some of those positive messages that you've received really show how necessary this book was to write. Um, we're going to strongly recommend to our group and maybe do a discussion on it in the group, but anyone listening to read this book, you know, I do have one last question. I think some people, you said pastors have read it, and I think sometimes books yeah. like this, people assume it's a book for women, but this, <laughs> isn't, this isn't a book just for women. No, not at all. Uh, in fact, I primarily wrote it, at least kept having to tell me, you know, um, here's the kind of women who will be reading this. I, I primarily wrote it for men. It, as I was writing my chapters, uh, that's often who I was thinking of was men like me. I was writing the book I wish I had and needed to have. And so, yeah, that, that's what's been amazing. We'll describe the book to people, especially as, as this was before it was coming out. I would describe the book to people and say, hey, this is a book uh, worthy celebrating the value of women 
what it does is it walks through the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and it pulls out and displays and celebrates how women are integral to God's purposes and shows the value they have in his kingdom. And nine out of 10 times, the response would be, that book sounds great. I'll have to buy that for my wife. Mm -hmm. Or uh, maybe our church's women's group could read that book. And the assumption seems to be that the value of women is a topic that only women need to be thinking about. It's not a topic that men should be interested in. And people will ask me, why would, why would uh, men read this book? Why would a man write this book? And my response is always, because men should care about the value of women. They're created in the image of God, and they reflect him. They're his creation. And so to not care about the value of women is in some way to not care about God. And I, what really astonishes me is I, I don't find that with, with other books, you know, um, we, we, our other topics. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't seem to think, well, this book's about the value of creation, so only men would want to read it. You know, it's, for some reason, when it comes down to women, women are a women's issue. Men don't really need to think deep about them. Well, I appreciate so much um, that you guys have joined us. I'm going to link in the episode notes the book and also your podcast. They have a podcast together now. And um, so we'll link that in the episode notes for our listeners also. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Colleen. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's been great.